you want to open up your Bibles, please, we're back in, in Mark's Gospel today. Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 11. So if you've got a Bible, um, please do open it up there. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. And then we pray and we begin. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. It's been a while since we're all in this gospel together, hasn't it? We had Advent, we had a guest speaker, Dan Holland, shared with us. So a long time has passed since we were in Mark's gospel together. So just to jog the memory, the last time that we were in Mark's gospel, we were hearing the story of the healing of Bartimaeus, weren't we? In Jericho. And now Jesus is actually heading into Jerusalem, heading into Jerusalem. And he's been on mission to Jerusalem for quite some time, hasn't he? Now in Mark's gospel, there's actually only one visit to Jerusalem that's mentioned. And that's led to some skeptics saying that Mark is at odds with the other gospel writers. Because the other gospel writers include numerous visits of Jesus into Jerusalem. And so they say, look, Mark got it wrong. Mark only mentions one visit of Christ to Jerusalem. But this isn't the case at all. Mark has a very pointed mission that he wants to get across in his book. And so what he does is he simply records the one visit of Christ to Jerusalem at the end of his ministry. He wants to elevate this week that Christ spends in Jerusalem. So he only mentions one visit, but Jesus has actually been to Jerusalem a number of times. It's just that the Gospel of Mark doesn't mention them. And this marks a big turning point, doesn't it, in Jesus' ministry. Do you remember when we first started out studying Mark together? How often Jesus would say to people when they would cry out. Remember the demon in the, uh, in the um, uh, synagogue it cried out, didn't it? You know, what do you have to do with me? Uh, was it son of David? I can't remember what he cried out. No, it's blind Bartimaeus. 
But either way, he would say to them what? He would say, be quiet. He would quieten them. Whoever would make a statement about Jesus being the Son of God, Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus would tell them, be quiet, wouldn't he? Um, And now we see the opposite happening. We see Jesus openly revealing who he truly is in Jerusalem. Now this passage that we call, what do we call this passage together? The triumphal entry, the triumphal entry. When we've studied scripture together as a church, haven't we always found that those passages of scripture that we're the most familiar with are often those passages of scripture that we understand the least about? It's so strange. Those passages of scripture that we know the most, that we can recite word for word, often they're the ones that we we don't really study deeply because we assume we already know them. But actually there's a lot more to this story of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem that meets the eye. There's so much here for us. We're going to talk about today. Uh, We're going to talk about prophecy fulfilled. We're going to see in this passage Jesus fulfilling messianic prophecy from the Old Testament written hundreds of years before he was even born. We're also going to see Jesus's attitude towards the Jewish religion as it was at the time. We're going to see how Jesus responds to the temple the temple. We know at this time in Jerusalem, how many of you know that the temple had just recently been rebuilt by Herod and it was a hulking great thing on the top of Mount Zion. You could see it for miles around. It was the envy of the ancient world. It was a stunning, stunning building and we're going to see Jesus's reaction to it uh, in verse 11. We're going to be able to draw out some applications as well um, and some things that we can learn about Jesus's response to the temple. We're also going to learn something today about the crowd. Uh, We all know that shout, don't we? Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest. I think there was a worship song back in the 80s and 90s that we would sing called Hosanna, Hosanna. You remember that one? Hosanna in the highest. So many bangers. Just love that. So we all know that word, but do we really know what that word means? And do we know where it comes from in the Old Testament? Do we know why it's important that they shouted that as Jesus came into town? So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the crowd and their response to Christ. There's so much rich doctrine in this one passage, so much for us to draw. And so we read at the start of the passage that Jesus and his followers, there's a crowd with him, they're approaching Jerusalem. Now how many of you have been to the Holy Land? Quite a few of you have been to the Holy Land. Now he's approaching Jerusalem, it says, through Bethany and Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Now which side of Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives on? It's on, who said east? Correct, it's on the east side of Jerusalem. And it's, it's a bit of a strange structure. When we think Mount in this country, we think of a big sort of pyramidal shape, don't we? Um, but that's actually not kind of how the topography is in Jerusalem. It's kind of just high ground. Uh, it's not like a pyramid shape but it rises up about 200 foot above Jerusalem you know when you look at photos of Jerusalem in textbooks or on Google you Google Jerusalem old city usually those photos are taken from the Mount of Olives because you get the you get the big panorama of Mount Zion and the you know the kind of the temple rock and now obviously you've got the mosque on the top of there as well Um, those photos are usually taken from the Mount of Olives it's high ground 
to the east of uh, Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, even before David's time, so a thousand years before Jesus makes the journey towards Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives had been a place of significance. It had been a place of worship. Also, when Jerusalem fell to Babylon in 586 BC, Ezekiel actually had a vision. He had a vision of the glory of God departing from Jerusalem and settling on the Mount of Olives. So isn't it interesting that Christ comes to Jerusalem from the place where Ezekiel said the glory of God shall come. Equally, we've got the Mount of Olives as being the final site of judgment in Zechariah 14. And many rabbis and a historian called Josephus, how many of you heard of Josephus before? Okay, Josephus associated the Mount of Olives with the coming of the Messiah. And so is it no surprise that Jesus should enter Jerusalem from the east over the Mount of Olives. All of this is riddled with prophetic significance. Jesus is telling the Jews who he is. And every single detail is important. It's all significant. It's wonderful. And so Jesus acquires a cult of a donkey. He acquires a donkey to ride into Jerusalem on. And it was important to him that this donkey had never been ridden on before. Eh, we could talk about this. We talk about the fact that Jesus rode in on a donkey that had never been ridden before. We talk about the fact that Jesus was buried in a tomb that had never been laid in by anyone before. Jesus is unique. But I want to take time just to look at this story of what we know as the triumphal entry. Because a triumphal entry was actually something that was known of in the ancient world. It's, it was known of, it was a practice. I mean, Ant could probably tell you a lot more than I could about this from his Roman history. But when a, when a general, when an emperor would achieve victory in a nation or in a battlefield or whatever it was, there would quite often be a procession into the city of Rome, into the imperial city. And what would happen was, first off, they would send the spoil of battle. They would send all the spoil of battle, all the prisoners, all of the gold, everything that they had won in the place that they won victory. They'd send in the prisoners and the spoil first. And then you'd get the troops marching in. And then finally, you would get the victorious general or the emperor riding in, not on the back of a donkey, <laughs> on the back of a chariot. You've seen the, the, uh, the film Gladiator? You see that procession back into Rome uh, and Commodus is riding on the back of that chariot. I always love that scene. Uh, it's incredible. But that's what we're talking about. So if a Roman had seen Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, they would have thought it was a bit strange. They wouldn't have necessarily thought it was particularly triumphal. This dude's riding in on the back of a donkey. <laughs> There's no chariot. There's no stallions. There's no spoil of battle. There's no soldiers. How is this in any way, shape, or form triumphal? It's not what you'd expect of a king, is it? It's not what you'd expect of a, a conquering hero. I want to take a time, just a moment, to just bag on prosperity preachers a little bit because we can never give up an opportunity to do that, can we? Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem on stallion's back. He didn't ride in on a chariot. He rode in on a donkey. Let's just think about that for a moment. We'll get into the prophetic significance of that. It wouldn't have looked very triumphal to the world, would it? 
Jesus' earthly ministry was marked by humility, not by financial prosperity. I've heard it preached before. How many of you have heard it preached by prosperity preachers that Jesus was a wealthy businessman, that he had houses in every town? I've heard it preached. Jesus had a seaside mansion in Capernaum. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And it wasn't even his own donkey. Jesus' ministry wasn't marked by the same kinds of things as the world would expect. It wasn't marked by flamboyance and big spending. It was marked by humility and meekness. And I think because of that, brothers and sisters, we have every right to question ministers when they own three or four private jets, when they have their own airport. Oh, it's all for the gospel. Is it? Is it though, really? We have every right to question that approach because of Jesus' ministry. I'm not saying that having wealth is wrong. I don't think the Bible teaches that. I don't think that the Bible teaches that Christians should be poverty stricken. That's not what the text says. But the text does have a lot to say about Christ's ministry being one of humility and certainly one that was not marked by flamboyance and crazy spending in order to win the rich and have influence. We can say that for sure. And so Christian ministers that use those things in order to try and further the gospel are actually running against the ministry of Christ. These are not the marks of a true shepherd. Rant over. Those who knew the scriptures, those in Jerusalem at the time who knew their scriptures, they knew what was happening. They knew why Jesus was riding in on a donkey and not a horse. They knew why Jesus was coming into Jerusalem through the east entrance from the Mount of Olives. Those who know their Bibles know how to interpret the times. Amen. Zechariah 9 verse 9. You can flick there with me if you want. The book of Zechariah says this in in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Isn't this amazing? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Those who knew their scriptures knew exactly what was happening. Here he is. Your king is coming to you. This isn't just a mere prophet. This isn't just a healer. This isn't just a good teacher. This is your king. How many of you understand Jesus is king? He's king, whether you believe it or not. He's king over your life, whether you acknowledge or not. He's king over the atheist's life, whether they acknowledge it or not. Jesus is king. Behold, Here is your king, righteous and having salvation is he. They understood what was happening here. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We've even got another prophetic word that's fulfilled from the book of Genesis, way back at the start of the Bible. This is an amazing one, Genesis 49 verses 10 and 11. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, 
until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Isn't that incredible? Again, we've got a picture of the Messiah coming on a donkey and also this picture of him washing his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. You know, there's a picture in Revelation, isn't there, about a horse, Christ riding on a horse and treading the grapes. There's always a picture of blood. We might say here in Genesis 49, it's a picture of his own blood. A picture of his own blood. The Jews at the time who knew their scriptures knew exactly what Jesus was claiming to be. And let me make this point. Those who know their scriptures, those of you who know your Bibles, know Jesus. Those of you who know the word of God are able to know who Christ is, why he came, what he brings. We read it back here in Zechariah. It says, righteousness and having, righteous and having salvation is he. Christ came with a ministry of righteousness and he came to offer salvation. Those who know their Bibles know this. That's how we know God. That's how we get to know the mission of Christ. That's how we understand the gospel, isn't it? Because scripture interprets scripture. Because God's word exegetes God. That means unpacks who he is. So the more we know our Bibles, the more we know the word of God, the more we understand God's work and mission in this planet. Okay, The more that we try to understand God outside of scripture, the more we try to understand God through our feelings, through our encounters, through our experiences, through the opinions of others, is the less we understand God, isn't it? We get to understand Christ through his word. We know this when Jesus walks, doesn't he, with those disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's in Luke's gospel in in chapter 24. And it says that they were doubting who he was. They They were confused about what was going on. And it says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself how many of you would have loved to be a fly on the wall in that conversation (laughs) Jesus exegeting the scriptures about himself wow okay so the scriptures tell us who Christ is the scriptures tell us who we are the scriptures tell us what this world is all about and they help us to understand the times that we live in you understand that we live in a very particular time in history, don't we? And the Bible helps us to frame our experience of this world according to God's truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, those who know their Bible should not be surprised at the state of the world as it is. Isn't that true? Those who know their Bible should not be surprised at the state of the world as it is. And I think he's absolutely right. The scriptures frame our experience for us rather than our experiencing, our experience rather, framing the scriptures. I don't know about you, but I've seen many times a sad story happening when formerly faithful brothers and sisters decide to change the orientation of what I've just said. Instead of interpreting their experience through the scriptures, they begin to interpret the scriptures through their experience. 
And sooner or later, they're not in the church anymore. They're not having fellowship with believers anymore. They don't believe the things that scripture teaches anymore. Why? Because they began to interpret the scriptures through the lens of their experience rather than the other way around. Now the Jews in Jerusalem at the time, the crowd that were with him, that were crying out, Hosanna in the highest, they, they believed, didn't they? It's clear that they believed that Jesus was king. These people, they, they'd come with him on the road. Do you know that? I think whenever I'd read these passages before, I figured there was a crowd waiting in Jerusalem for him. And there might well have been some that were in Jerusalem waiting. But I think it's Luke's gospel mentions that actually the crowd was coming with him on the road. Um, they were coming with him and they were crying out, Hosanna. These people believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed he was king. Now their words tell us maybe they didn't fully understand what kind of kingdom he came to bring because they say, you know, the kingdom of our father David, don't they? Now that's a strange thing to say. That's actually not a quote from the Old Testament. But you can see maybe the kind of kingdom they're expecting. Some kind of king coming to rule, to reestablish Israel over against Rome. You know, they're expecting some kind of political, military kingdom. But nevertheless, they understand Jesus is king. They're worshipping him. There's no question of that. They're laying their garments down on the road before him. Think of that. You know, that's incredible, isn't it? Taking the clothes off your back to lay them in front of Christ as he comes into town. That's another interesting prophetic picture here for us as well. Why would they do that? What were they saying here? There's one other time in the Bible when this happens. And it's in the book of 2 Kings. It's the story of Jehu. Remember Jehu? You know, went around destroying people who had, uh, who had done naughty things. Jehu uh, was a man of blood. But Jehu became king. And in 2 Kings 9.13 it says, Then in haste every man then took of his garment and put it under him, that is Jehu, on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So what they're doing in putting their cloaks down on the road is saying, Jesus, you're king. We proclaim you king. And there's, I think again, there's, there's another picture for us here. of People taking their coats, taking what was valuable to them and laying it down in front of Jesus. And I think again, there's a picture here for us of what it is to be a Christian. It's the joy of hailing him as king, but equally there's a sacrifice. There's a, there's a taking off of what is valuable to us in this world and laying it down before him. And I think, I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know how that might look for you. Whatever it is that is in your head when we talk about this, you laying down what is of value to you to serve Christ. But maybe that's something to think on in this new year. What can we lay down before Christ that is ours, that we see as ours, that is valuable to us? What can we give over to him? Because these things can become obstacles to our faith, can't they, and their growth. The worldly things that we say, we need this though, God. You wouldn't expect me to give that, would you? Because we need it. It's my coat. I need to stay warm. But these people lay their garments down before him. And that is part of the Christian life, isn't it? It's always saying, Lord, I'm ready, open-handed, to give whatever might get in the way of me walking with you. And so... 
Jesus rides in on a donkey into Jerusalem. The crowd are going wild. And I think we've already talked a little bit about this picture of Jesus on a donkey in humility and meekness. Not a great show of military power. And Jesus in his earthly ministry was meek, wasn't he? He was humble. He was unassuming in many ways. He's a feet washer, wasn't he? A foot washer. Jesus was meek and humble. And I always feel challenged by that. Because the world views leadership in, in such a different way. And success in the world is viewed very differently, isn't it? Than how Christ puts it forward. And I think there's another challenge for us there. In our walk. Um, in our relationships. How can we put on Christ to be more humble? Uh, to be meeker? to be gentler, to be kinder with others around us and to not use power. Each of you has power. You recognize that, don't you? Each of us has power. Each of you has a power and you can use that power to build up or you can use that power to abuse, can't you? And in this year, how can we be more like Christ? Putting on meekness, putting on humility, putting on kindness to draw others to the gospel. That's something I challenge myself with. But the, the fact is that when Christ comes back, he's not going to be riding a donkey anymore. He's not going to be riding a donkey. Let me read to you from Revelation 19, verse 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of a fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Christ is King, amen. Christ is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We don't get to make him King, as Vody Bochum says. You don't get to make Christ King, he already is is king we just get to acknowledge that fact and right now is the time to do that isn't it right now is the time to make him to acknowledge him rather king in your own heart because on that day when he arrives on that white horse there's not going to be the same choice that there is now there aren't going to be any skeptics on that day are there there aren't going to be any hopeful agnostics <laughs> there aren't going to be any atheists on that day no and so now's the time to come and to bend the knee before Christ now's the time to come to him when he's opened up a way of salvation for us amen and we read as well that as the crowd is shouting making such a noise Hosanna in the highest 
we read, don't we, in Luke's account that the Pharisees say something, don't they? The Pharisees say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Stop them from doing this and making a scene. And Jesus answers them, doesn't he? He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones will cry out. You say this, dead religion will always despise true worship. Dead religion will always hate true worship. Remember the story of David's first wife, Michael, in the Old Testament. And David danced undignified, didn't he, before the ark of the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And I think sometimes we could talk about other people that we view as people of dead religion. But listen, there's a bit of dead religion in all of us, isn't there? There's a bit of dead religion in me. I, I'm, I'm on a journey. I don't know about you, but I'm being sanctified. And sometimes in me, there's an offense at undignified worship. There's an offense in my heart sometimes and a barrier that I have to jump over in order to really go after Christ. You know, let me think of an example. When we go out on the streets, that, that's my thing. That's my job. And every week I go out and we witness on the streets in Wolverhampton, sing worship songs, Tell people the good news of the gospel. But every week, I have to fight dead religion to get there. I have to fight dead religion. I don't always want to go. I don't wake up feeling like, do you know what? This morning, I want to go out into town and get sworn at. <laughs> this morning, I just really feel like going out there and making a fool of myself. I don't feel like it sometimes. I don't feel like seeing parents of kids who are at my kids' school walk past and double take me and then never talk to me again in the playground. I don't always want that. And there's a dead religion in me that's embarrassed. Okay? Is that the same with you sometimes? Is it an embarrassment? Yeah? There's a, dead, there's a Pharisee in each of you. But Jesus says, listen, if you don't cry out, I'll find a stone. If you don't share the gospel... I'll find someone else to do it. It's all right. Each of us has to do battle with the inner Pharisee. Christian people are people of joy. They're people who rejoice. Isn't that right? These people are happy and the Pharisees are offended. Christianity is not stoicism, is it? You know? There's so much wisdom in the wisdom of God and there's much wisdom in, in other philosophies of men but listen, they, they don't have joy. They don't have joy like the gospel and Christianity is a faith of rejoicing. It's a faith not of happiness, some fickle feeling that's based on our circumstances. It's a faith of rejoicing. It's a faith of joy. Your joy is not anchored to your circumstances, is it? It's anchored to who Christ is. And the promises of God that are irrevocable. Give yourself permission to be joyful. You know, sometimes we have to stir it up, don't we? Again, I don't wake up most mornings always feeling that joy. I have to stir it up. I have to look to Christ. I have an amazing book, actually, called Words of Cheer by C.H. Spurgeon. I recommend you get it. Words of Cheer. It's a very small book. And literally, it's just Spurgeon expounding on the promises of God. I'm telling you, by the time you're through with a mini chapter, you're joyful. You're happy. 
You're not so worried about your circumstances or how many hours you slept last night. And I'm just saying that. Listen, let's wrestle with the inner Pharisee. Let's wrestle with the inner buzzkill. <laughs> let's be joyful. Christianity is not stoicism. The people are joyful. They're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And as I said, I never knew what that word meant. I used to love the song though. We've got to do that one Sunday. But I used to love this one. Actually, it's a Hebrew word. And the word is not actually Hosanna. That's the kind of Greek uh, version of it. But it's Hoshiana. Hoshiana, okay? Which means, save us now, please. Did you know that? Hosanna, save now, please. That's what it means. So as Jesus is coming into town, you've got a crowd that are going, save us now, please, Yahweh. Did you know that? It's a quote from the Old Testament from Psalm 118, which literally reads, Ana Yahweh, Hoshiana, Ana Yahweh, Hitzlicha, Na, which means, Now Yahweh, save us, please. Now Yahweh, give us success. That's what it meant. And so they were singing this as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Did you catch the name that they were singing there? That's not just any ordinary name, is it? We talked about this before in the Names of God series. Yahweh is a name that's reserved only for God. You don't call anyone, any old person, Yahweh, but Jesus is called Yahweh. I think it's really interesting when we read more of Psalm 118 as well. Written a thousand years before Christ. I'm just going to read a little bit of it to you because it blows my mind how much significance is in it. Psalm 118 verses 19 to 27, it says, Open to me gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you've answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Remember this now, don't you? This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's the Hosanna bit. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is good, sorry, the Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So in this psalm, which was interestingly, as a psalm of ascent. Do you know what a psalm of ascent is? Or a song of ascent? Go on. That's right. Going up to Jerusalem, they did what? What were they doing as they're going up to Jerusalem? They're singing them, aren't they? Yeah, so they, they're singing these psalms in a particular order as they go up to Jerusalem for Passover. And Psalm 118 is the final psalm of ascent. And so this is the song that the people are singing as they head up to Jerusalem for Passover week. And Jesus is coming in and doesn't it, just, doesn't it just tell us so much about who he is and his ministry? We've got Christ the gate of righteousness. Reminds me of Romans 1, 16 and 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. We've got Christ being the stone that was rejected. 
which becomes the cornerstone. The cornerstone. And Jesus literally quotes that in the very next chapter. We've also got Christ, the light of the world, which pops up in Isaiah 9. Do you remember we studied that in Advent? It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light shone. And we've also got Christ as the festal sacrifice. Festal means Passover. So Christ as the Passover lamb, the Passover sacrifice for our sins. There's so much I could get into, but listen, if you're not interested in salvation, if you're not interested in righteousness, then you're not interested in Christ. Just be honest with you. If you're not interested in those things, in being saved from sin, the gospel's not for you. Just go somewhere else. Go to some other place where they promise you what you need. But if you're interested in salvation, if you're interested in getting your sins dealt with and forgiven, if you're interested in eternal life, then this is for you. This is who Jesus is. This is what he offers. This is the gospel. Breaks my heart that so many churchgoers aren't really interested in the gospel. They don't really want who Christ is. They want the accoutrements that Christ brings. We want the blessing. We want the blessing. We want the health. We want the wealth. We want the prosperity. We're not that interested in righteousness. We don't really feel we need that. We feel we're good. You don't want Jesus. These are the things he comes to bring. Amen. Let me just finish with this because this passage ends on a bit of an anticlimax, doesn't it? We've got this wild procession into Jerusalem. People throwing down coats, people chucking branches of palm trees in front of Jesus. Hosanna in the highest. And then it kind of ends on a weird note. It says Jesus came into the temple. He had a look around and left. That's how it ends. A bit of an anticlimax. He arrives at the temple in Jerusalem, the, the center the crucible of the Jewish faith in the Holy Land, in this wonderful new building just been completed by Herod. It was the envy of the ancient world, but there's no greeting party. There's no priests in there waiting to give Jesus a welcome. There's no Pharisees or scribes. Welcome, Prince of Peace. Come in. This is your home. Nothing. Nothing. Jesus, Yahweh, incarnate comes into the place that is supposed to be his home on earth and there's no one there not one soul there to welcome the son of God can I just say this to you Jesus knows what it is to be lonely Jesus knows what it is to be underappreciated to be overlooked how many of you have felt those things I'm sure many of you have But Jesus knows what it is to be those things and we can find comfort in him, in that experience. The son of God came to the one place that should have been home. The one place he should have been celebrated and he was ignored. Overlooked. We also get from this passage that Jesus wasn't particularly impressed with what he saw. Like I've said, this was the envy of the ancient world. Everyone was hyped about the temple. Jesus takes a look around and leaves. He wasn't impressed 
with the temple. He wasn't impressed with their feat of architectural prowess. I think what Jesus found ultimately in that place was he found, instead of finding a people who worshipped God, who were the people of Yahweh who worshipped God, he actually found a people who worshipped the temple instead. He found a people who worshipped religion, but not the God of that religion. Their pride was in their ministry. They didn't love the God of that ministry. Yes, exactly. They didn't know the time of their visitation. In Malachi 3 verses 1 and 2 it says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord who you seek will suddenly come into his temple. He'll suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. These people didn't worship God. They worshipped religion. They worshipped the things of the ministry. I think here we've got the danger being presented to us. The danger of a Christless Christianity. The danger of a Christless Christianity where it looks great on the outside. It looks flashy. It looks successful. We've got all the stuff. We've got the amazing worship team. We've got the greeters. We've got the joy. We've got community. But where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? It's like Ichabod when the glory departed the house of Israel. These are the times we're living in. These are the times we're living in. In fact, William Booth, the founder of the Foundation, uh, Salvation Army, he said this 100 years ago. The chief danger that confronts the coming century, our century, will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, heaven without hell. That's what we've got in the temple. We've got worship of Yahweh without Yahweh. And this is the danger that we face in the body of Christ in this nation today is Christianity without Christ. I want to put that to all of you. Is your Christianity, is your faith Christ-centered? Is he the focus of your adoration or is it the things of religion? Is it ministry? Is it being part of something successful? Because if so, you can find that elsewhere. There's a danger in idolizing religion and the things of ministry and achievements and legacy. And we might actually miss Jesus in the scramble to try and serve him. Did you catch that? You might miss Jesus in the, in the scramble to try and do something great for Jesus. I know that to be true. You can work your tail off trying to do great things for God and actually miss God in the process. The temple that the Jews were so proud of would literally be raised to the ground in just 40 years from when Jesus said these things. Gone. Never to be rebuilt. Let's not be prepared to give our lives for anything less than Jesus. Amen.
Let's not give our lives for anything less than Jesus. Let's stand. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your grace to us today. We thank you, Lord, that through this passage, you are teaching us how to worship you. And Lord, you're bringing many challenges to us today about the way that we worship you. Lord, you're showing us the importance of honoring you as king. Lord, we're not to invite you into our lives as some kind of flight partner, some kind of backseat driver. You're to come into our lives and be honored as the Lord God on high, King of kings, Lord of lords. And so, Lord, today, let us lay whatever worldly comforts we might hold dear before you as you ride in to be king of our hearts, king of our lives. And, Lord, also, please help us Help us win the battle in our lives over the inner Pharisee that says, stop all this crying out. Stop this joy. Lord, help us in that battle to continue to cry out, Hosanna. Save, Lord, please. To cry out with joy, excitement to see you enthroned. And Father, finally, we pray that in this day we would see a church in this nation that doesn't just love the things of ministry, that doesn't just love success and buildings and acclaim, but loves the God who does reign, that loves the gospel, that loves Christ. We pray we would see that in this nation again, a Christ-centered Christianity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.